Everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. So great to have you along for the ride. And just to get this out of the way, are you all excited the TV work today? I was a little nervous, but it was coming around the corner and I saw it flicker and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. But um, nonetheless, uh, you have already noticed that we are still in the longest series in Keystone's history, uh, Virtual Israel. And thank you, by the way, for all the emails that you've been enjoying the content. I'm having a blast uh, presenting it. Um, we are going to land it next week, though. So the end is in sight, I promise. And it's not because I've told you everything that we're going to tell you in Israel. We just sort of ran out of weeks. But anyway, um, if you're joining us for the first time, you should know that this is content that I've been working up in anticipation for some trips to Israel that we're going to start taking. The first one actually is planning to go this October, um, pending obviously some factors beyond our control. Um, and, and what I'm doing each week in the series is I'm basically introducing you to one of the sites that we're going to be visiting and then sharing a bit of what we're going to be sharing at that location. Uh, with our time today, I want to show you another one of those sites that I'm almost certain you've never heard of before. It's an area right in the middle of the city of Jerusalem called the Southern Steps. Um, and it's a great name for it because it's basically a 240-foot-wide staircase that in ancient times provided the main path up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's where Jewish people would go to worship God and to offer sacrifices to him at the temple that stood there until 70 A.D. Now, I find the Southern Steps particularly interesting as well because they were also the place where first-century Jewish religious teachers, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even rabbis like Jesus, they would gather their disciples to teach them. So along with being called the Southern Stairs, it's also called the Rabbi's Stairs. So um, because it's just a staircase, I was trying to find some really exciting video to show you, and I could only find 15 seconds. So just check this out and give you a sense of what it looks like. steps really are one of my favorite places to visit in all of Israel. Uh, and not only because of the view, it's absolutely beautiful. You can see the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives very clearly. But, but I also like to visit there because, well, the southern steps provide an incredible setting in which to consider one of the most significant moments in all of human history, the day the church was born. And whether you realize it or not, that day actually has a lot to tell us about how God desires to work in the lives of followers of Jesus today. People like you and me. Now, with the rest of our time, I'll show you what I mean. But to set the stage for what happened that day, 
I'll begin by noting something that strange that Jesus says to his first disciples shortly before physically departing from planet Earth. Uh, his words are recorded for us by a man named Luke, who was an early Jesus follower, in a letter that was later included in the New Testament of your Bible. The letter in the Bible is called Acts, and it records the actions of the first disciples of Jesus. Uh, here's what Luke tells us Jesus said. He writes, Jesus gave them this command. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now notice that Jesus' instruction to his disciples to wait, it wasn't a suggestion. Luke tells us it was a command. It's like waiting was something that apparently they had to do. In other words, Jesus says to his disciples, listen, before you go and help people understand what God has accomplished through me, uh, before you teach them what it looks like to follow my example in the way they live in the midst of this world, before you launch my church, I need you to wait. Because, and, and this is implied, but also the key to understanding what comes next, and we'll throw this up on the screen, because you don't have what it takes within yourselves to do what you're going to need to do. You don't have what it takes within yourselves to do what you're going to need to do. As Jesus continues, he informs the disciples of what specifically it is that they're missing. What is this missing ingredient they need to wait for? This gift, as Jesus calls it. He says it this way. He says, for John, that's John the Baptist, if you're familiar with church John, this man who would immerse people in water at the Jordan River, who immersed Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, you should know that Jesus' disciples would have been a bit confused by his words, even though as children growing up in synagogue, they would have been exposed to teaching about the Holy Spirit. The authors of the Hebrew Bible, that's our Old Testament, describe God's spirit as a, as a sort of divine force of influence that was placed on and could be removed from certain individuals and prophets, including Old Testament heroes you probably heard of if you spend any time in church. Men like Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon and Elijah. So they would have heard of the Holy Spirit, but but the disciples of Jesus, the idea that, that they, like as a group, would be baptized or like literally immersed somehow in the Holy Spirit, that, that would have left them with all sorts of questions. And, and, and their questions would only have grown as Jesus continued talking. Here's what Jesus said next. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So they're like, okay, we understand that, you know, there's going to be this movement that's built around who you are and what you've accomplished. And we understand that apparently this mission is going to be worldwide. Um, but, but what's this about, about power? And it's almost like Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, listen, my church will be built through your efforts and courage and passion and experience, but... My church will not just be built through your courage and efforts and passion and experience. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you in ways that you can't begin to imagine so that you can do things that you could never do without him. Well, moments after this conversation, Luke records that Jesus leaves his disciples. He literally ascends into the sky and they return to Jerusalem to wait. 
Now, as they walked through the city gates of Jerusalem that day, it had been 40 days since Jesus' resurrection. And the streets of Jerusalem would have been buzzing with energy. Not only because of all the rumors that are circulating about a miracle-working rabbi named Jesus who had been seen alive again by hundreds of people after being crucified by Rome, but the city was also in the final preparations for a major Jewish feast or festival called Shavuot in Hebrew, which is our vocab word for the day. There'll be a quiz. And you probably have heard of it as Pentecost. So if I say Pentecost or Shavuot, I mean the same thing, and I'll probably go back and forth, so please don't get confused. But, but this was a feast that marked both the spring wheat harvest in Israel, and the people thought that of that as God's physical provision for the needs of his people after a long winter. But the Shavuot or Pentecost also celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. They thought of that as God's spiritual provision for the needs of of his people. So, so Pentecost or Shavuot was all about God providing everything his people needed, physically and spiritually speaking. Now, Shavuot was also one of the three times a year that God had instructed all his people to gather in Jerusalem to remember and to celebrate his commitment to them. And, and so consequently, the city that day would have been overflowing with Jewish people from all over the ancient world. People who, it's worth noting, would have been speaking all sorts of different languages. Hold on to that. It becomes important in a minute. Anyway, 10 days after the disciples returned to Jerusalem, so after 10 days of waiting, Luke updates us this way. He says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, so all the disciples were together in one place. Now, scholars argue that there really is only one one place Jesus' disciples would have been on the day of Pentecost. They would have been on the Temple Mount because, well, that's where they would have been every day. So it's impossible to imagine that they wouldn't have been there on a high holy day. And what that means is that they would have walked up the southern steps with countless other people flowing into those temple courts as the sun was rising that morning. And they would have joined the crowds near the temple, that's a big structure in this picture, in order to hear a trumpet blast at 9 a.m. that signaled the morning sacrifice. And then following that trumpet blast, as sort, of, as sort of the sound echoed throughout the chambers of the temple, a priest would have come out and the priest would have ascended a platform and the priest would have begun reading sections from the Old Testament relevant to the feast of Pentecost. And the mood uh, that day would have been solemn, reverent, holy, because to the Jews, this was the holiest place on earth. They believed that heaven and earth came together inside the temple, and they were in the presence of God. Moreover, they were there to commemorate God's commitment to and provision for his people. This was serious business that day on the Temple Mount. Well, when you understand the history, it's not surprising that the first passage that would have been read that day would have been a description of what happened immediately before God gave the law to his people at Mount Sinai. Uh, so if you've seen uh, the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie, you have some idea what we're talking about, maybe Prince of Egypt if you're a millennial. That's how we go around here. Right, you know, equal opportunity. But uh, they're described the moment God's presence came down on top of the mountain. And this description is found in the Old Testament book of Exodus. So imagine it with me. The sun is rising up on the Temple Mount. 
People are crowded in. The priest descends. He opens the scroll from Exodus and he reads that on the day that the law was given, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And as I just imagine this, like Jesus' disciples would have listened reverently to those words as they described something that had happened 1,500 years before their time, one of the defining moments of the Jewish people when God sort of claimed them to be his people and taught them how to live in the world. And they would have reflected on the power and the potential and the promise of that moment when their ancestors had an encounter with the presence of the living God. Well, following the reading from Exodus, the priest would have uh, opened a second scroll. And the scroll, second scroll would have been from uh, the writings of a prophet named Ezekiel. And as the selected passage, once again, included a vision of the coming of the presence of God. This time, uh, Ezekiel's vision was uh, 600 years before the time of Jesus. And so Ezekiel talks about what he saw in this vision. He writes this. He says, I looked... And I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. And he says, the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And, and once again, like these words um, would have just washed over the disciples of Jesus. They would have been hanging on every syllable. Like the coming of the presence of their God was described as wind and fire, and that would have filled them with wonder. And awe. And, and you got to remember, like, this was the same God who just 50 days earlier had raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, they were well aware that with this God, anything was possible. And so as the words of the prophet Ezekiel sort of washed out over the crowd, it was like at this moment or very near this moment that something happened that they would have caught immediately. Like, it was happening Again, seriously, here's what Luke tells us. He says, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And you say, well, the house, how do we know this is the temple? To the Jews, the house was the temple. That was God's house. And so then he goes on. He says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. In other words, there was wind again and there was fire again. I just imagine those disciples, Peter and, and Thomas and Matthew and James and John and the others just looking at each other with just stunned expressions on their face as it dawned on them that something new, something unprecedented was taking place. Something that as they would soon recognize had been well worth waiting for. God's presence was coming again, but in a way that no one could have imagined. And in an instant, everything for those first disciples changed. And as Luke continues, he describes what happened. He says, all of them, all of the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. He goes on, he says, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why? It was a feast. They all had come to celebrate God's provision. He said, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language, utterly amazed, they ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? That's not a compliment, by the way. It's like they're from the north, right? 
Like, like, how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Like the people were aware something miraculous was happening. It says, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? There's wind and there's fire and then a miracle breaks out on the Temple Mount. The Holy Spirit filled those first disciples and empowered them to do something that they could never have done without him. And consequently, Jews from all over the ancient world heard of Jesus' death and resurrection in their own native tongues. Well, never one to miss an opportunity, Jesus' disciple Peter stands up and he delivers a sermon in the temple courts that based on the feedback from the people, as we'll see, was one of the best sermons ever given. Uh, And this sermon actually launched the church, catapulted it out of the gate. Here's here's sort of my best attempt at a summary of his extensive talk. It was a a four-point sermon, somebody got an A in seminary. Um, But yeah, here's basically what Peter said. Um, And he said it more poetically than I. You can read about it yourself later. But yeah, he's like, he looks at the people and says, you killed him. Like, that's Jesus, right? You killed Jesus. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. That was the whole sermon. It was kind of like, it was really clear, you know, to the point. He did have four big ideas, but, you know, what do you do with that? Yeah. So, yeah, you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. And again, the whole transcript of the talk is in the book of Acts, if you want to read it for yourself. But what's undeniable is that Peter's message came through loud and clear that day. In fact, Luke tells us that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, brothers, what shall we do? And and Peter replied, he says, repent, turn from your sin and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he goes on, he says, and, and this is huge, because this, okay, this just happened for the disciples, check this out. And you, as in everyone who repents and is baptized, everyone who places their faith in Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's like, it just changed everything for us, you got to check this out, right? He says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will Call. This is the invitation to all who place their faith in Jesus, that the gift of the Holy Spirit will come. In other words, Peter looks out at this crowd and he says, listen, you need to acknowledge that you did what you did. And I know you didn't drive the spear into him. You didn't hang him on the cross, but you were shouting that he be crucified. So acknowledge that you did what you did and publicly align yourself with Jesus and his work on the cross by being immersed in water. Because you're going to do it in front of your friends and everyone's going to see you. And when that happens, you will receive the gift that will empower you to live a life that isn't possible any other way. A life lived under the guidance and instruction of the Holy Spirit. A life lived, in a very real sense, from the inside out. Which is one of the fundamental shifts that happened when the Holy Spirit came. Religion always worked from the outside in. And the Holy Spirit comes to work from the inside out. Now, this account raises all sorts of questions. And, you know, but what's undeniable is that God leveraged the events of this day to capture people's attention. And Luke tells us some specifics. He says those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. 
thousand people. Practically, this meant like for days and days and days, everywhere you went in the city of Jerusalem, people were being immersed in every body of water they could find. And there's not a ton of water in Jerusalem. So I would imagine there were lines and people were asking questions like, what in the world? Thousands of people publicly proclaiming and they would have had their own version, right, of the sermon. They would have gone like this. They would have said, you know, um, we killed him. God raised him. They've seen him. We're sorry. <laughs> and we believe. We believe. We believe. About 3,000 people that day are saved. Now, during my studies for this talk, I came upon a connection it's a little nerdy, so you have to hang with me for just two minutes. So those of you that are nerds are going to love this. And if you don't, just kind of, mm, like you do, do with us. You know, you move with us sometimes. Like, mm, that's interesting. Yeah, but just hang with me, okay? okay? It's just too good not to share. And it goes like this. During the disobedience of the children of Israel surrounding the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the author of Exodus records that right after they got the law, about 3,000 of the people died. In other words, the era of the Old Testament law began with the death of about 3,000 people. And the era of the Holy Spirit began with about 3,000 people being saved. We don't have time to get into all of that, but I'm guaranteeing you, if you're like going to Kadoba after for lunch, that is a great topic of conversation. Just saying, okay? So at this point, I know what at least a few of you are thinking because um, you send me emails, okay? And it goes like this. Um, that is really interesting. Um, but what exactly does that have to do with us today? Like 2,000 years later, halfway around the world. And that is a great question. Because honestly, it has everything to do with us today. Let me explain. I'll begin with our big idea. Um, you know, every week we kind of boil the talk down to one main point, And this is the point for today. Christianity is not a self-help movement. It, it's not. In fact, uh, becoming a Christian is essentially a process of reaching the end of yourself and declaring that when it comes to all sorts of things in this life and in the life to come, we're largely incapable of helping ourselves. And if you spend any time as a human being, which most of us have, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you've probably had things about yourself that you really wanted to change. I know I have. And you've probably read books and attended conferences and listened to podcasts, all with the goal of finding some information that hopefully will motivate you to do the thing that you know needs to be done to fix whatever needs to be fixed about yourself. But here's the thing, I've been a pastor now for like 20 years, and in lots of conversations with lots of people who have tried that, uh, we, we eventually, humans that is, we eventually reach a moment where we realize that at least for certain areas of our lives, we just don't have what it takes to do what we know we need to do. We don't have what it takes to do what we know we need to do. And if we're honest, we don't need more information. We need intervention. It reminds me of friends who've gone through the program at Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first step in that process is just this, this admission, I can't fix myself. I need something outside of me. And that declaration of dependence, not independence, but a declaration of dependence on a higher power becomes the key to unlock the rest of the program. It's like, it's this moment of 
surrender. It's this moment where you acknowledge, you know, I don't have what it takes to do what I need to do. If you're a Christian, you're like, I don't have what it takes to be like Jesus. I keep trying and I keep failing. I have my good days. I go through periods where I'm really disciplined and everything kind of is moving up and to the right. And then I have these moments where everything falls apart and I throw up my hands and I say, I, I mean, I, I, am I beyond hope? And I don't need more information. I need intervention. And the good news right at the heart of the gospel, is that intervention is precisely what the Holy Spirit offers to those of us who have said yes to the invitation of Jesus. He offers us the opportunity to change beyond our natural capacity. And again, he empowers the change from the inside out by teaching us and reminding us of God's design for our lives and God's love for us and our identity in Christ. Like because of Christ, we are children of God and we have been rescued and we have been redeemed. And it's like, he says, listen, you're no longer who you were. You don't have to do what you used to do. God wants to heal you from the inside out. And, and here's the thing. I know some of you are thinking like, okay, I, I mean, I profess faith in Christ as like a, you know, a freshman in high school at a retreat. There was a guy up front with a guitar, sounded like John Denver. You been there? Yeah. And there was like this altar call thing. And I went down to the fire with my friends and I received Christ. And I guess, you know, I received the Holy Spirit that day, but I don't know that I've ever understood this before. It's like, why doesn't he just change me if he's in me? And that's a great question. But here's the thing, you can't do the change you need to do often without him, but he won't do it without you. Because God loves you too much to short circuit everything in you and just make you do what you're supposed to do. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, he wants to partner with you. He wants to partner with followers of Jesus to recreate us in the image of Jesus. It's like you have everything you need when the Spirit's in you. But he waits for you to surrender to his will for your life. It's an incredible invitation. And and not surprisingly, it's an invitation that's explained over and over and over and over and over again in those letters that make up most of the New Testament of your Bible. If you just read them looking for it, you start to see it everywhere. It's like, turn your back on what the inner voice is telling you to do and listen to what God is telling you to do. It's like there's a a way that leads to death and there's a way that leads to life and the Spirit will point you to life. And so you need to learn to live in the Spirit and listen to the Spirit and obey the Spirit and not harden your hearts to the voice of the Spirit and walk with the Spirit. Like lockstep with the Spirit. In fact, here's an example of how a pastor named Paul explained it to early Christians living in a Roman province called Galatia. The letter is called Galatians. But here's what Paul writes. He says, since we live by the Spirit, in other words, the animating force of the Spirit of God is in you. You have been redeemed. You've been restored. You've been resurrected. Like you're alive again. So you're alive by the Spirit. He's like, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And you go, wait, 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 wait. Okay, Paul, if you have to tell them, that must mean, and he's like, yeah, they're not doing it. And maybe they didn't know they needed to. But he's like, you have been resuscitated by the Spirit, so now you need to follow the Spirit's leading in your life. You say, well, what does the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit will remind you every single day, every single step. He'll prompt you to follow the example of Jesus. People say, how do I know what the Holy Spirit is telling me to do it? If you feel an urge to do something that Jesus would do, that's the Spirit. He's going to call you to turn away from selfish and self-destructive tendencies. 
that if we're honest, are all too natural in this world because we're a little twisted inside. At least maybe, maybe it's just me. Yeah. But see, we were never, in, in these things that, that, that are selfish and self-destructive, they were never supposed to be part of the human experience. That's not how God designed them. It's, it's, it's sin. It's missing the mark. And in essence, Paul says to these believers, listen, because you've accepted what God has done for you when Jesus died on the cross for you, I want to remind you that you need to lean into what God wants to do in you. So you got the for you thing. That's great. But now, now let's talk about what he wants to do in you. And I'm telling you, Christians who learn to keep in step with the Holy Spirit live changed lives. And they're fascinating. They're captivating. And they really honestly become sort of a non-anxious presence in the world. They, 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 they kind of reflect the sort of life that, Je that Jesus lived. And instead of approaching each day, you know, scrambling to make sure they get what they deserve, they approach each day from a posture of servanthood saying, you know, how can I help? And what does God want me to do today? Who does God want me to love? Before we, before we land, I just want to leave you with a couple of questions um, to sort of process this in your own heart and in your own life. The first one goes like this. Have you been trying and failing to help yourself by yourself? And, that, and we've all had seasons like that, so there's no judgment with that question. Just a self-diagnosis. And, and if that's so, the good news for you is that there is help available from the God who made you and who knows you better than you know yourself and who loves you desperately. And then that, that salvation begins with this proclamation of inadequacy. It's when we say to God, listen, God, I, I am not good enough. I am not disciplined enough. I've made a mess of my life and I need help. And I don't just need information. I need intervention. I'm not as strong um, as I, I want to be. I'm not as smart as I want to be. And I don't know that I have what it takes to make the changes I know I need to make. But I know that you are. So please invade my life and empower me to surrender to the voice of your spirit. And as I do, may I start to find that change that I know I need to make. That's question number one. Sort of, have you ever had that moment of surrender to God? And if you haven't, today is as good a day as any. He's invited. He's waiting for you to respond. You say, God, I, I, need, I need to be rescued, both with regards to what comes after this life, but man, right here in the middle of this life. So that's question one. Uh, second question is for all those of us who sort of have already crossed the line of faith in Jesus. And, and it goes like this. If you are a Christian, I mean, honestly, are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Or maybe you're at a place where, if you're honest, you've grown kind of complacent uh, in your faith. You find yourself saying, you know, I feel like I'm good enough for now. And you find yourself repeatedly sort of telling the Holy Spirit, you know, I, I'm going to pursue the changes I need to make, but I've just got some stuff I need to do for you. I'm just going to do it later. I'm just going to do it later. I'm, I'm, I'll get to it. But here's the thing. I'm telling you, your best life, my best life begins at that intersection of our faith and God's faithfulness. Our trust in him. Because here's the thing. He is faithful. And he's waiting to partner with you. He's waiting to partner with me in the art of helping us become the people he made us to be. Recreating us right here in the middle of this life. I guess what I'm trying to say, if, if this question resonates with you, is just the next move is yours. He's given you everything you need, and he's just waiting for you to accept the invitation for that next step. 
The Christian life is not a self-help movement. It's not about information. Fundamentally, it's about intervention. And that is good news for all of us. Would you stand and I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving such gloriously unlovable people. <laughs> thank you for loving us not because we are good, but because you are good. Thank you for accepting us just as we are. But then thank you for loving us enough not to leave us there. Thank you for inviting us and not forcing us. But thank you for never, ever, ever, ever giving up on us. I pray for conversations that we would have with those we do life with, honest conversations about what it really means to listen for the voice of your spirit. We celebrate this morning your work for us on the cross and we stand in awe of the work that you desire to do in us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are at work from the inside out. We thank you for the grace in which we stand. And I pray that we would be a people who never, ever, ever gets over the wonder of what you have done for us. It's in the matchless name of your son, the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior. Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you back here next week for the conclusion of Virtual Israel.